Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is Steve Pantazes. I originally met Steve in 2015 when he was published in Writers of the Future Volume 31 with his very clever story, Switch. I've been nagging him for about eight years now, asking for his novel. Well, he hasn't only provided that novel, he has done so in spades with a nine-book epic fantasy series entitled The Light of Darkness, of which I read the first volume. Up to the launch of this series, he has published short stories in Nature, Galaxy's Edge, and Intergalactic Medicine Show, all in addition to the Urban Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future. So welcome, Steve. John, thank you for having me on the program. Yeah, like I said, this is a um, long time coming, so this is great. <laughs> yes, I know. It's been, it's been years. Uh, Dave Farland asked me about my novel many years ago, back in 2015, and I, I told him, yes, I will be uh, producing one soon. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's imminent. Been, it's yeah, imminent. imminent, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I guess let's just get into this with um, – your your trajectory as a writer. So when did you start and and how'd that go? Your ups and downs. I know you've had a very successful career other than being a writer, but a little bit about, you know, your trajectory as an author. Yeah, John. So uh, believe it or not, it uh, started when I was in second grade. Um, I was given allowance money for a book fair at school uh, so I could book buy a book of my choice. And they had set it up in a library, some tables with books all over them. And I just picked up this one book and I saw it was like a, you know, a river carving through a forest along with a mountain, the backdrop, and these people riding on the river on barrels. And I picked it up and I said, wow, this is really, this looks really neat. So I bought it with my allowance money and it was called The Hobbit. So <laughs> I know. And, uh, you know, The Hobbit, it filled my imagination with adventure I'd never read fantasy before. This was like something brand new to me. And around the same time, now this is uh, late 70s. So around the same time, I saw this movie called Star Wars, the original. And so uh -huh. here I am, age nine, and I'm writing a science fantasy novel, which I read about a, wrote about 100 pages. I still have the spiral-bound notebook of this. And it was a mashup of Star Wars and The Hobbit, of uh, spacefaring uh uh, pair and their adventure on a fantasy world. So, you know, I knew then that I really enjoyed creating stories. I loved drawing. And then, you know, I loved uh, writing. And so, you know, as a teenager, I started reading a lot of books, fantasy books, Lord of the Rings, uh, Rift War Saga, Sword of Shannara. And I just fell in love with the genre. So at 16, I started writing another book, um, and I said, okay, you know, I'm starting brand new. I have another a big fantasy world. And I made my first map on big poster board. I still have a, a copy of that. But, you know, I didn't finish the book. And I ended up going to college, took some creative uh, writing course, kept writing. And it wasn't until, you know, really until, um, you know, my 20s, early 20s that, you know, I came up with some ideas which actually are uh, related to the series that I'm releasing now. and. In my 30s, I ended up writing the first version of that. It was a duology, and it was actually a portal fantasy. And I had read the book by uh, or a series by Stephen R. Donaldson, Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever, and it gave me the idea for taking a modern world and putting uh, the characters into a fantasy setting, secondary world. So I wrote that, and I said, okay, this is going to be a big New York Times bestseller. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> you know, let me start – let me send it off to some agents. You know, they're going to accept it right away. And I did get a couple of full manuscript requests, but uh, nothing went through. So I set those aside and I said, all right, what else am I going to work on? And so I, I ended up taking a local course here. Uh, I'm in the San Diego area. So I took a local course on a weekend and uh, a gentleman was teaching uh, on short fiction. I said, I never wrote a short story before. But I will sure, you know, like to, you know, learn the format. And I got to write some literary fiction, some fantasy, some sci-fi. 
And then around the same time, I heard about this contest, the Writers and Illustrators of the Future. And I, I didn't know anything about it. This is uh, like in 2008. So I, uh, I submitted a story and I said, you know what? The writing group that I'm a part of, they love the story. This is definitely going to, this is definitely going to resonate with the contest. Let me send it in. But no, it, it didn't quite, uh, make its place. But, uh, I did receive an invitation in the mail to come up to the uh, achievement awards. And I said, well, you know what? That's in Los Angeles, Hollywood. I said, that's about two and a half hour drive. I can make it. So that's what I did in 2009. I drove up to uh, the 25th, it was uh, uh, volume 25, John. So this is at the Roosevelt Hotel. And it took yeah. place in the room where the first Academy Awards was done. That's what I, I was told. And, Ooh, that's correct. and I couldn't believe it. Here I am in a suit. I got to pose with the winners, the artist and the, um, the writer uh, who won the grand, uh, grand awards. And I was just blown away. I said, my goodness, look at this. This is televised. They're up on stage. This is something that's just uh, the biggest thing I've ever seen in terms of uh, writing. And I said, I need to keep submitting. I, I love this contest and what it, what it offers. I have to keep trying. And, you know, with, with uh, some changes in my work situation, I, I entered six times total. And with between 2009 and 2015, I entered just, you know, those handful of times. But I was at a point where, you know, work was changing. I was writing less. And I was almost at a point where I was going to give up on writing. It just wasn't tracking. I couldn't, you know, get, get anywhere with, um, with my, uh, my novels. But mm-hmm. then, you know, I got this call and I was out of the blue I, uh, because I was, my last story that I had submitted, I was like, all right, I have, I'm not going to be writing for a while now. I'm just going to try anyway. And I got a call, I think it was like in January, and uh, I was told, hey, you're one of eight finalists. I said, seriously, I'm one of eight finalists. So I kept quiet because... And my wife later on is like, why didn't you tell me uh, that you were one of the finals? I said, I don't want to jinx it. You know, there's only three slots uh, for, for the winner, for the quarter. So I decided, okay, I'm going to keep quiet about this. We're not going not gonna, to, you know, hope too much, but we'll see what happens. And then I got a call saying, hey, you won uh, second place, fourth quarter. Uh, you're you're going to be in volume 31 and uh, you're going to get to come up to Hollywood for a workshop week. And I was just absolutely floored. This was the one thing that I wanted uh, more than anything else in writing wise uh, in my career. And so um, I got to, uh, I guess you could say I had a lot of ups and downs um, in the path from second grade all the way to that point. But that was very much, <laughs> very much the pinnacle. Even to this day, it's the pinnacle. And John, you know, one thing I got to do and I, and I said this in my, my acceptance speech is that I got to tell my, my father that I won before he passed away a month later from cancer. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I got to, got to make him get, make him proud of me, you know, that one last time and tell him I won. So yeah, that, that's, 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 cool. that's my journey, John, uh, to the rise of the future. That's and what's, and what's important too is there's a, there's a factor of persistence that, I try to convey as often as possible in this podcast the importance of the, um, you know, the if you're thin-skinned on rejection, then you need to deal with that because that's just part of the writer's journey. One man's epic fantasy is another man's slush flush. You know, so it's there's all types of things. It's not necessarily magic even though that's what you're writing it is a persistence factor because it's just you have to have enough stuff out there often enough persisting enough that and also know your market too it's important that you that a person knows their markets did, did that something that you that you were cognizant of when you were submitting to writers of the future or to any other markets for that matter that i said you were published in um yeah not really so much in terms of when i was submitting but i did get a chance so so we're we're this is workshop week now in 2015 and dave wolverton slash dave farland you know he pulled me aside he said hey uh i haven't got a chance to talk to you yet you want to you want to sit down um and we sat in the leather armchairs author services and and dave was speaking to me he's like you know what do you uh 
you know, what are you submitting? What are you working? I told him, I said, oh, I have a near future thriller, you know, sci-fi. And he's like, oh, I was like, oh, why? Oh, he says, well, fantasy, you know, sells better than sci-fi. And I said, well, I do have this fantasy um, story that I set aside. And, you know, I did end up talking to to Dave about that strategically because I got to know Dave afterwards at Superstars as one of the the, the co-founders of Superstars yep. Writing Seminar. And I got to talk to him one-on-one. I said, hey, Dave, I need some 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 advice here. You know, I have this particular story. It's epic fantasy. You know, I have this character is 18 years old. Uh, and he said, no, 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 you know, make the character 16. And I said, 16? He said, yes. Yeah. So that way you can appeal to the young adult fiction market. And he said, well, look at Harry Potter, which he pushed pretty heavily. He says, you know, the character is middle grade and then it ends up at young, young adult, has a wide appeal for both the uh, young adults out there and for adults who also read young adults. There's a large uh, consumer base for, for young adults among uh, older generation. So strategically, you know, Dave helped me figure out, you know, for my series that just uh, premiered, uh, what I needed to do to, to set a strategic direction so that I can uh, get the right market, the right audience, and the best broad appeal possible for that. And so I took that to heart, uh, those lessons. I heard it from other authors, too, in terms of what to choose strategically. And then, you know, the L. Ron Humbert article, uh, Manuscript Factory, talks about that as well and talks about... Yeah, let's discuss that a bit then, because we're going to get into Petra and uh, how he evolved and... It is absolutely correct because you've got, it's what, a nine book volume, a nine volume series? Nine volume series. I mean, that's going to take a while for it to release. So you're going to capture your, your YA audience and they will grow with your series. You know, even if it's, even if you do one a month, if you hook them, nobody's going to get through that many books in, in nine months. It's going to take a couple of years at least to, um, for somebody to get through nine volumes and they're going to grow up with it. Just like people grew up with Harry Potter and, um, and that's only one of those YA series that I, that I really tracked with. I didn't, you know, I wasn't so much on some of the other ones that were, were very popular. Although I am getting ready to interview Brandon Mull coming up pretty soon with his Fable Haven, which is, you know, YA as they move along. But anyway, so you're talking about that, the, um, the 100 essay that you enjoyed reading the manuscript factory. So what about that was, Gave you the pill because that's also somebody when you do the online writing workshop, which features video interviews with Dave Farland, Orson Scott Card, and Tim Powers. There's the uh, 11 or so essays from Mr. Hubbard, including the Manuscript Factory. So, what about that? Well, what what spoke to me about the Manuscript Factory? I mean, it was written what eighty something eighty something years ago by L. Ron Hubbard, mm -hmm. kind of as a guide for aspiring authors offering, you know, insights into the process of writing and also treating yourself as a factory, as someone who is capable of producing manuscripts, uh, as someone who needs to look after your own factory with care, just uh, being able to make sure the parts are working, making sure you're able to, to produce uh, material being you know, healthy of your mindset. And the, and the one, you know, one key takeaway that uh, the article talks about is that, you know, writing is a business and you have to think about it as a business, as a writer, if you want to actually have a chance of making a career of it. Now I see authors like Kevin J. Anderson and Jonathan Mayberry and they're prolific. And what they do is rain or shine, uh, Brandon Sanderson too. Uh, they set themselves to task. It's not when the muse hits them. It's when, right. you know, you're, you're doing a job and whether you want to or not, you sit down and you got to produce. So L. Ron Hubbard, when I was reading the article, I uh, reread it recently, you know, it was producing like 70 to 100,000 uh, words a month and you know, a pretty incredible output. So the idea is that, you know, you want to be able to produce on a regular basis. So you need to set time aside, write regularly, write consistently, produce like a factory would. But uh, you also have to balance, this is another one of the points he makes, the balance uh, quantity versus quality because you don't want to just be, be producing uh, junk. You want to be able to produce quality material. So when Hubbard was writing the article, he was analyzing his output. He was looking at, you know, where was, which markets were working with him, 
how could he be efficient and produce the, the right number of words to get the most bang for the buck? He analyzed that, did his computations and figured out, you know, which lanes to put himself in. So, you know, for authors who are looking to make a career, they need to think about the same thing. They have to make wise decisions, strategic decisions from the onset. Don't just write a story or start a series and just willy-nilly and just hope it works. Try to understand yeah. the market and seeing what will resonate with the readers out there and focus on that. So the article talks about that and it's still relevant today. And it also talks about, you know, writers building a reputation uh, too. And this is something like Kevin J. Anderson and Brandon Sanderson they have reputations out there uh, that are, you know, building their brands. And also uh, that goes along with professionalism and making sure that uh, you are good to your readers, good to the public. Don't engage in negative, you know, negative negativity. Uh, don't get too uh, politically uh, polarized. Try to, to uh, put yourself out there to protect yourself and reputation and build up on it. So Hubbard talks about uh, writer's reputation being uh, reputation being crucial and carefully cultivated uh, in in his article. And then uh, the the last part of it that's important too is uh, continuous improvement and the ability to adapt uh, to adapt to changing conditions in the in the uh, in the in the market. So in the publishing industry. So back then. Right, thirties. You know, you have a different market than you have today. There was traditional publishing. Right. You had agents. He advocated having an agent to help you with your business. But today's uh, landscape is widely different. But uh, the principle is still true. You need to be able to adapt to changing conditions in the marketplace, and so you have to pay attention to where where you do that. Uh, for me, as an indie, uh, I know that you know in order to succeed, uh, I needed to have a series. Uh, and also, uh, not a trilogy, but something longer, because that with the indie publishing, uh, when you promote a series, you're putting advertising in there, you're heavily advertising book one, and that's going to be your loss leader. And it's like that in other industries, too. You have loss leaders. You go to Costco and get their chicken. That's a loss leader. But then you end up buying you know, $300 worth of stuff. So the idea is that you have to think about it strategically for the indie author Having a series is a strategic move. Having nine books means nine products, right? Nine separate products. And then you're, you're hoping that your readers are hooked with book one and there's read through and then you succeed. So that's helping align with what Hubbard was talking about with being able to adapt and then, uh, and then also continuously improve by looking at what you're doing and making the, the correct steps to improving what you're doing so that you can be the most effective and produce the best product quality uh, with quality as possible. That's awesome. That's absolutely correct too. On um, You see now how it's it continuing to evolve. You got that one conference in Las Vegas now called 20 books to 50 K on that principle that if someone discovers you, what else has he written or what else has she written? And if there's nothing there, then some people are into wanting to, to dive into an author. And if there's nothing else there for them to dive into, they might be a little more reluctant to uh, check out this person's only got one book. So that's good on that. So I'm curious, did you, have you written all nine books now? Yes, John, I've written all nine books. Uh, I wrote the entire series. Uh, you know, I started this 40 years ago with a map. We'll talk about the map in a second, but uh, the map, <laughs> the map, the about in the, in the, in the uh, the end of your end of your book, you, when you talk about you know the um, how how this came to be, and you talked about it all started with a map. So, tell me about this map. Right, right. So you know when I was I was living with my father um, in my early twenties, and uh, we were in the remodeling business, and we hit this recession, if you remember, like right around 90, 1992, and it hit us pretty hard. So I was working mm -hmm. odd and end jobs as a supplement in between our remodeling jobs. And, you know, I ended up with some free time in my hands. And one thing I love to do when I was, you know, I like to draw. And uh, that was something that I grew up doing. And then also, you know, creating, creating stories. So uh, I thought to myself, you know, I, I, I scrawled a map on a piece of paper. And I said, huh, I wonder if I can... I could paint this. So I went to a store, I got some uh, watercolor supplies, 
watercolor paints and I did a map, didn't look too good. But then I did a second map and I was like, wow, you have forests and you have uh, mountains. And then I have these deserts. And so I was creating this map with all these different uh, domains, these six territories uh, on, right. on this map. And I said, huh, you know, that's interesting. You know, who lives here? What do they believe in? What, are, what's, what kind of world is this? It's kind of like a Middle Earth, but, you know, what, what, what people live there and what's the conflict that would make it a, a story interesting? So that was the genesis for how I came up uh, with my series, which basically pits uh, two uh, opposing groups of people, those who believe in the God of light and those who believe the God of darkness against each other. And it puts in the middle of it a 3,000-year prophecy that the people who believe in the God of darkness will rise up and vanquish the people who believe in the God of light. So that's where the uh, the series, the beginning of the series takes place. But I was coming up with these ideas when I had studied the map that I was creating and then came up with my cultures uh, out of that and, and, and what they were, what they were striving to achieve uh, long-term. Yeah. And no, like in your map, cause you've got anybody that, is listening to stuff here. It's it's in his book that we're talking about um, that that dark that begins, and uh, so the beginning of it. And the, um, he's got these different maps. You got the the maps of is it Asia? Yeah, I, I call it Asia. 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 Okay, the map of Asia. So one shows you've got it. Looks like it's painted. Well, it's black and white here, but you've got it. Colored in, I don't know. If, I guess those are mountains and trees. In the next one, the next map in the in a sequence is no no. Um, it just I guess breaks down boundaries of the of the various uh, provinces or states of of Asia. And then there's the I'm not even begin to say <laughs> what right. pronounce these. Yeah. So no, I, these are all from you and yeah. No, you're you're right. So here's here's what I thought about when I was doing um, the the maps for the books. Uh, first of all, I did the watercolor map, and then years later I did um, a vector drawing uh, of the maps. But I said for print, I need this to look good in black and white. So I hired an artist um, to do these, uh, in, engraved maps. I said, I wanted something that looks beautiful, engraved, kind of like the back of a dollar bill. Um, that was kind of yeah, engraved feel. Like, right. You, that's like watercolor. I mean, come on. No, no, this is engraved artwork. This is a whole different level. And he did yeah, an amazing so job. So the, the, so I said to myself, you know, I'm sick and tired of looking at books with these maps and you gotta like, you see this tiny map on a, on a page. I said, what if I do multiple maps? It's the same world, but I have some zoom in. And that's what you're seeing on some of these subsequent yeah. pages, zoomed in of the different regions so that the reader can actually see that in a small format. So the first- That's Northern Kingdom. I can read that, that one. That one you I can, can read, right, right. There we go. That's one of them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, one of the six domains. So the first map is a terrain map, and it shows some basic cities and, and locations, plus the terrain, the mountain ranges, the desert, the, yeah. the, the forest. The second map- is a, uh, a a breakdown of the different territories, and it shows you know the domains and how they're divided into their various um, you know states and provinces. So yeah. I wanted that for the reader because I'm referencing those names in the in the story. Wouldn't it be great to have a reference for that? And then we have zoomed in close up like the desert nature desert nation of Terjame, Mirjame. Uh, and then to the south, the Empire of Corin, the Northern Kingdom, Darkforth, and the provinces of the south. Those different those different domains, and each of them have you know various uh, types of cultures. And John, you were pointing out that it was it felt like to you is reminiscent of ancient Egypt. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, the The inspiration for the desert cultures was inspired from my love of ancient Egypt, and so when I was making the map. Um, especially the Empire of Corinne, you could see the river. It's kind of like the River Nile. It's called the River Life in the in in the series, but it's like the River Nile, and all inspired by my love of ancient Egypt, which my father and I we got to look at documentaries together when I was in my early twenties, talk about how the pyramids were made, and just you know we 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 both loved uh, ancient Egypt, and I wanted to incorporate that in the fiction. So that's where kind of the the genesis of the you know the the map and also of the the main cultures 
uh, in the story take place is desert landlocked civilizations um, in this uh, uh, brewing war between good and evil. Yeah, so, okay, you got good and evil. Now, normally, good and evil is, is white and dark. But you've got the protagonist here who's um, going after the, at least so far from volume one, is um, the dark, the black, the uh, the night. It's like, where am I not? No, I- you're right. So here we have, so I'm going to call him, poor, so, so the protagonist, Petra, uh, I yeah. poor Petra because he 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 suffers a lot um, having to uh, to deal with this. Yeah. So the unfortunate thing is this. You know, he he's he's a slave at the beginning of book one yeah. since age eleven. He has no me- memory of his past before age eleven, and then he's he's fifteen at the time, the beginning of the story. Now he's in he's in um, the uh, nation of Terjame. Terjame believes in the god of darkness. And so it's an unfortunate situation of being a slave and also in a culture that, that believes in, in so. And so, uh, you know, Petra, you know, he, he um, when he escapes slavery, he ends up finding an opportunity as a mage apprentice. He has the proclivity for being a mage. He has the, the ability. It's, it's, a, it's something that's innate into the person in this magic system of whether or not they yeah. have the ability to use magic. and so. He ends up going to a school of, of you know, dark arts, basically. Um, so it's not the intention that, you know, to do evil. Uh, it's the intention of uh, when you are growing up in a specific type of culture. You know, you could take certain co- uh, countries around the world that have dictatorships and so on. You know, you're growing up under that culture. You have these certain belief systems. You know, that's the type of environment that he ends up in. And it's a challenge for him. Plus, one thing that we were noting uh, toward the end of book one, John, was that fact that he's he's starting to uncover his past. He's learning yeah. that he is being drawn into a much bigger, bigger um, uh, thing, part of this big dark prophecy that's kind of driving the entire series, and that he is related to a, a fabled champion of of those that will vanquish the uh the good people uh aman the his his brother who is yeah you know the son of the god of darkness so the poor guy you know he has good belief system he wants a normal life right but he can't have a normal life because he's pulled he along <laughs> he's pulled along into this prophecy so one of the the things that i was uh finding interesting with creating the story was the idea of free will versus destiny and fate, whether or not you um, uh, have the ability to make choices in your life and do what you want or things are preordained for you. And he struggles against the destiny part because the destiny is calling for him to do something really bad to, su- to support those who believe in the God of darkness. And he doesn't want mm-hmm. that, but he can't help it because he's being inexorably pulled in that direction. And no matter how he tries, we see in the series that he is being pushed in that direction. So it makes for a really interesting, you talk about black and white, uh, interesting gray area. Where do you go? How do you deal with it? Um, how do you try to be a normal you know, person when you have lineage with um, you know, this God of darkness? So it, it does make for a really interesting Yo development. Dad. Yo, dad. Yeah, go Where dad. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> dad. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, that's just that internal conflict. You know, normally you have the conflict, but normally it's with another character, but he's got the conflict within himself as well as the various other characters that he's playing, you know, his his uh, teachers, his uh, friends, you know, how all this stuff, you know, he's he's got his friends, which seem to be good folk, and uh, his teachers also have their plans that they're trying to do, and then the the prophecy says this and then whoever this one guy is I haven't figured out yet that's that's kind of like uh the brother um no the uh the fallen angel the guy. watcher the watcher yes yes yeah so he's in there too so i'm not interested in doing much of spoilers but you got all these different things that after volume one i'm like and i and i read the the uh the teaser then for volume two and it's like wow where is this going you know it's 
it's uh, it was just interesting that it's kind of like with Mission Earth, where the protagonist is, well, it's not like it, but it's a, some concept there where the protagonist is the bad guy. He's the he's the guy that's telling the story, or the narrator is the bad guy, Sultan Greece, and you're getting his story, and he's the one that's got all the the bad stuff and all the things which are politically incorrect and all these things that are causing the demise of planet earth. And his job is to sabotage the uh, mission, the mission earth. But here you've got Petra who's got all these people that are guiding or it seems to be guiding him that are pushing in the direction of the darkness. That's who they're, that's the faith that they're subscribing to. And so he's stuck in that. He's got this, you know, this good intention. And these other guys are like, trying to forward their agenda of of darkness. And it's similar to like on Mission Earth where the um, the narrator, um, and it's like the Sultan Greece follows his boss who's trying to, to um, take over their confederacy and he's using drugs and illicit activities and black PR and all kinds of stuff to try to do this. And the the hero of the story is trying has to, to navigate through all this stuff here to get his mission accomplished and deal with these guys at the same time. So it's I don't know that that carries that that far with you, but it's it's definitely a, a similar stroke where it's it's unconventional what you've done there, but it's very, very intriguing. Thanks, John. Yeah, no, Petra is definitely struggling um with how to uh, navigate his life. Because yeah. he, he Growing up in Turgeme, where everybody's believing in the god of darkness, they have certain belief systems. And in the neighboring nation across the desert, Mirjame, where they believe in the god of light, you know, he has no exposure um, to that culture. Uh, he does in book two, but there's no, there's no exposure to that culture. There's no understanding what is the other side of the story. Uh, it's, it's really difficult um, to, to, um, to have your moral compass go in the right direction. But I know because, you know, I know Petra inside out. I know that, you know, his heart isn't a good place. It's just that with destiny interfering, it's, it makes for a very difficult uh, time of it. And so that's what um, he has to struggle uh, with the, in the entire series until we get to the climax yeah. in book nine. Yeah. Okay. The climax is in book nine. There we go. Just a few more few more pages to read. It's interesting you did all nine books because that's what we did also with Missioner. It was all ten were written before the first one was launched. And then it's just pocket to pocket to pocket. And then there's no no question about making deadlines or release dates because it's there, which is great. That's very smart on your part. Yeah, John. You know, I one of the things I wanted to to do uh to achieve two things with um with writing all, all the books in in the entire series. First of all, you got to know where the story's going, where you want, where you want to end. Uh, but I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to make a promise uh, to my to my readers that I would finish what I started, complete story, beginning to end, kind of like Lord of the Rings is a complete story. I know it was broken up into three books, but it's a complete story. You know, I didn't yeah. want to do what uh, you know some famous authors were being hammered for doing, uh, which was you know they have legendary work that's left unfinished, and who knows if they will finish it. Right. I wanted to complete the yeah. job no matter what. So that was number one. Uh, number two is I wanted the latitude to be able to go back to the earlier books and make changes if I had to, which I did. Uh, one one thing um, that I find is a powerful uh, storytelling technique is a touchstone, being able to put, you know, certain clues that later on, um, you know, you're surprised by it by a reader. But then you're like, oh, I remember that, you know, that happened earlier on. And I wanted to have a few touchstones as well so I could make changes in the beginning, uh, the earlier part of the story if I needed to, and then have these touchstones. So I have it all cohesive end to end. And so that's why, you know, I ended up writing the entire series before launching book one. Yeah, I mean, that, that is so smart. It really, really is. And uh, yeah, well, Carrie English is taken care of. I mean, Rude Lords was never finished and Carrie English is not finishing that one there. It's, it's an awesome series. Um, Brandon Sanderson completed a series, you know, so it's, it's totally legitimate, you know, to, to have it. I mean, nobody thinks, okay, I'm going to die in five years. So I better read, write it all before nobody thinks like that, but by having it worked out. And I think even senior to the fact of having it all in the can is that you can go back and even add to the intrigue. And you know, like I said, these, 
you know, some people call them, you know, the Easter eggs, but uh, the, you said the touchstones? Touchstones. 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 Yeah, touchstones that kind of like, you can go back, oh, yeah, I remember that. And these little minor things that all of a sudden become major later on. So that's that's definitely cool. And it's I'm in an unfortunate position where I'm now into my next novel and I've got another one waiting after that. And so it's hard to get back in these series because some of them I just get so enthralled with. You know, I start off, okay, totally switching gears from hard sci-fi to epic sci-fi to light fantasy to to dark fantasy to, you know, all these different things. And I have to, my mindset changes. And I'm also going from adult to YA. I went from reading Brandon Mull's Fable Haven, which is a real, I mean, I can totally understand why he's an international best-selling author. It's just like, it rocks, you know, but it's way different than when I started reading this one here. It's like, whoa, okay, let's just like reset, you know? So I'm always doing that. But I just, once I get into a book, you know, like this one here, I, be, I became totally enchanted with your magic system, which then brings up the next question. So how did you create your magic system? I'm only seeing the beginning of it, but what was your, what's your technology on creating magic systems? Yeah. So John, you know, I didn't even know what magic system was back when I was reading, you know, uh, these earlier books uh, in my life. It wasn't really mentioned much, you know, Brandon Sanderson made it famous. Um, he's like the, 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 the guru of magic systems, but the, um, I did want to have something that was uh, more of a, like a hard magic system, something with some defined rules. And so, you know, one of the things that uh, really fascinated me early on was, you know, this, I, I have a, uh, an encyclopedia on angels. Um, and I, and I really uh, was fascinated with angels, you know, good angels, fallen angels, um, just, just that type of, um, you know, of history with the human race. So I thought, you know, one thing that I, I thought would be a really uh, good use of magic would be uh, divine power, being able to pull energy from spiritual realms. And this is a, um, the magic uh, that, like I mentioned before, if you have the proclivity for being able to be uh, someone who's a mage, uh, it's a hereditary bond passed down. It may skip generations um, but it is something that is um, in the bloodlines. So the people who are able to to be able to harness the magic are ones that have a natural affinity for it. The rest are like muggles; they can't do it. Uh, so, <laughs> so too bad for them, right? Yeah. So the people who believe in the god of darkness, they come up with their own magic system that uses the spiritual realm of the netherworld, which is you know the. Uh, the South, deep South. And then yeah. Yeah, the other, uh, the other folks, they have, you know, the energy pulling, you know, from the realm the, the, of light. And so each of them afford is different, uh, slightly different abilities in, in my magic system. Plus I have an elemental magic system that, you know, able to harness the elements of fire, lightning, things like that uh, within the series. So I bring them all bring them all to life. I try to make it as natural as possible by having a school for, uh, for, uh, young mage apprentices. You got to see John, you know, the instructors and teaching and you learn a little bit at a time. And to me, it felt natural. It felt like, wow, if I was going to this school, you know, this is how I would learn. I'd study, I'd have the natural affinity. I'd be able to use it. I'd learn a little bit, move, move objects with my mind, uh, use words of power to be able to do other things, you know, it'd become more natural. And, as, and, and you see that, you know, in the book, it's, you don't just become a mage. It takes seven years from apprentice to journeyman to master. It takes seven years. And that's a lot of time because you have to, um, you have to learn these skills. You have to learn them carefully, uh, cause there's some dangerous elements to them. And the more advanced you become, the more you're able to learn these higher level arts of shared combat and, you know, these uh, martial arts style hand poses, which shape energy, which were, uh, were introduced in book one, two. So all of this right. coming together, it was just kind of a natural evolution for me to think about this um, as I was developing the series. It wasn't with any specific intentionality of building a, a magic system. It just kind of organically came about. And then I fostered that. I wanted to make sure that these uh, people uh, that are using this kind of adhere to the rules um, with the magic system. So it makes it feel very realistic in terms of uh, limitations and uh, cost and stuff like that. Yeah, because that's one thing that I 
have observed in many of the magic theories and books that I've read, you know, there's there's various rules that they have to stick to. So if you use it, it's going to cost you something immediately. You know, there's the to keep this this balance. You know, there's that concept of balance, which is is so frequent in them on being able to do the um, as the as wizards get more and more powerful, you know, being able to pull from other energy sources is another thing that they can do is being able to access them. But using those energy sources and has adverse effects in whole other areas or, or, or means, you know, so there's, and then you've got the guys that are just basically deities growing up, you know, like, like uh, the Belgariad, you know, the Belgarian is, you find out at the end that he's a, uh, a young god and he's just he needs to be apprenticed and, and nurtured so he can grow up whereas you've got you know some of like in brandon's you know the various metals that you take to give you the various powers and if you don't have the metals then you don't got the powers so there's a, there's various ways you know that's that's been done i was just curious if you had any particular way of developing you know the obviously like your your first book the Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings, you got some where you've got, they just have it, you know, like the, the Elvins uh, people there, they've, they've got their magic power. They just eventually just get tired and they don't, you know, they just wear out, you know, so they can't keep on doing their battle. They have to recharge as well. So I was just curious if there's anything like that, that you've, that you adopt because it's obviously you've grown it and you've got this sense of, of how it should fit, how it should work. That came from your book of angels. Uh, no, that was just the the inspiration for, like, say, the Watcher. You know, we mentioned yeah. the Watcher as as a yeah. like a fallen angel. Fallen angel. Um, you know that that comes from um, those books, and then I have other others um, uh, in, in the later books that also pull from from that uh, encyclopedia. But just the uh, the use of spiritual energy, you know, like in Star Wars, you have the Force. You know, having that yeah. unseen energy that you could tap into, and you know, I wanted something, something like that. But yeah, I did. I, you know, with Lord of the Rings, you know, you have a. And I got a thing that, on that thing with Lord, with uh, Star Wars. I kind of like lost interest once I found out that the Force was these bugs in the in the all oh, the Metaclorians. The blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, that, that's it's no more. It's no longer spiritual. It's now just bugs in the in the blood yeah, i think that was a mistake putting that in there but it was a big mistake yeah because lost, right. lost me as an audience right yeah so um you know with lord of the rings it's more of a soft magic system you don't really know yeah. what gandalf can do you see things yeah. done i don't think you know token knew what he what he could do he just kind of had him do things but you know yeah. the ring the one ring the ring of power makes you invisible and it allows you to 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 see the unseen in the unseen world you know, some of that is known, but, you know, for the most part, you really don't know what the powers are. But in Brandon Sanderson, like I'm reading Way of Kings right now, um, you know, you have a lot of good information in the Stormlight Archives about the the, the power that uh, people are able to harness. Uh, and so Brandon sits down rules and, and lays those out and makes it a really interesting read. So you have two spec sides of the spectrum. One is the soft magic system. One is the hard magic system, you know. It's up to the author whether or not they uh, pursue one or the other, or you could do a combination of the two, maybe have some mysterious yeah. ancient power that is yet to be revealed. Uh, so uh, you can go in any one of those directions. It just makes for a very interesting uh, story. But if you do set rules, obviously you should adhere to them because the reader is exactly. expecting you to. Yeah, no mulligans. No mulligans. So uh, on... Now on the um, on these characters, at least on your deities, are these like based on Greek or Roman mythology at all, or any other types of mythology? No, I, this, uh, the mythology. yeah, no. So in the, in the light of darkness, really just the god of light and the god of darkness. I wanted two opposing forces aligned with good and evil. I thought that okay. would be the the best way to do it. Now there's paganism that happens um, to draw on the ancient uh, Egyptian gods. Um, I have a pantheon of gods that were believed by the Empire Korean uh, people back before they converted to uh, believing in the God of Light. So I do have that. It pays homage to, uh, to, to ancient Egypt. But, okay. you know, in the book, there's only two gods. 
Okay, good. I was just just curious on that. So now on for aspiring writers, like you've been working on this project for you said forty years. Yeah, but actively not actively. No, um, you know, map in the early twenties. Some of my story ideas uh, wrote the duology in the thirties. Set that aside. Try to do a trilogy of it in my late forties. Didn't didn't go. Um, and then actively once, once COVID hit, you know, right before COVID, you know, I, I went to, uh, I, I, so I go to superstars writing seminar, which is Kevin J. Anderson, Rebecca Mesta, and, and some other founder, uh, founders, it's, uh, you know, writing seminars on the business of writing for authors it takes place every February, Colorado Springs. And so after writers of the future in 2015, I found out about that, uh, uh, seminar. So I started going every single year. Yeah. So in 2020, and I was thinking, okay, I want to get a traditional publishing deal. I don't care about this indie author stuff. I went with that mindset in there. But when when I when I uh, ended up taking some sessions, you know, there was a gentleman, Craig uh, uh, Michael Anderley, you know, 20 books to 50k founding Craig, member. Craig was a guest in the podcast, right? Um, about a year ago. Yeah. yeah, he and his wife. Yeah, fantastic team. Um, yeah, and amazing what they've done. So Michael Anderley, he was a guest at Superstars, and he was also a uh, um, he had a, a session on rapid release strategies, and I was just interested in in, in hearing about it. Um, so he gave me the idea that kind of sparked the idea that I should maybe think about going on an indie track, taking the trilogy idea that I set aside, and then creating, like I said, the nine products, the nine separate books, um, doing a rapid release um, schedule of like one a book a month if possible, yeah. and uh, so, so, uh, from that, uh, 2020 session, I asked Michael in the, uh, in the, in the session, I said, Michael, I said, what do you think about short fiction? I have stories that I've sold. I have stories that are on my hard drive. What do you think about those? And he said, that might work if you try to sell those stories, uh, each as their own individual ebook, but he says, you got to get a newsletter. You got to get a, get people on, on the newsletter. So all of these these tips got me thinking, okay, I'm going to look at going on an indie track and I'm going to start by publishing uh, short fiction. So I published about 30 short fiction titles, novellas, short stories as eBooks on Amazon, all in preparation, learning the business uh, for my, my uh, refactored nine book series, which I started writing in 2021. And I refactored about 300,000 words of fiction that I had written early on that ended up over 900,000 words, close to a million. Uh, when, the, when I finished the, last, the first draft of the last book right before I went to Egypt uh, at the, in December of 2021. So I finished the, the, uh, the nine books. And so what I did, you know, this is the Manuscript Factory. This is, uh, this is Kevin J. Anderson. This is uh, Jonathan Mayberry technique of setting aside time every day so 9 p.m. after the missus is, is done, uh, we're, we're done with dinner, watch light TV, midnight, 9 p.m. to midnight, because I'm a night owl, uh, every day I would sit down and work on the series. And so I figured out the average word count per book, say close to 100,000 was my goal, 90,000, 100,000. How many words did I need to uh, do per day to achieve this within a certain time frame? And so I came up with the target number that felt comfortable at 1,500 words per day. I said I could do 1,500 words per day within a three-hour three block of time, get into my flow state and go ahead and, and knock out uh, the words. So I found out that I was able to stick to that schedule and work nights and then on weekends to be able to achieve that. And then that's how I was able to get to the finish line in December 2021. And all of 2022 was spent on editing, getting beta readers, uh, pulling together an advanced reader copy team, uh, doing all of the, the getting the covers done, the interior artwork done, which you saw the gorgeous maps, all the front, all the covers yeah. are done. I want to knock all of that out so I have everything set for my factory, right? My factory to be able yeah. to produce uh, ahead of time. So I decided, you know, I announced to you that you know we would be I would be releasing in April. So that was my target now for book one. So it'd be, I had to get an editor and proofreader and get through all of that. And so that's the, the time that I spent last year was getting all that stuff worked together. So draft and then now second draft, editor, proofreading, and now we're in production. 
the factory's producing. We have book one out there and book two um, will probably be released uh, sometime in May. And we'll see when uh, I could get book three out there, perhaps in June. So that's kind of this, wow, this, okay. the, the work that I'm doing now. The other books, I think, because my editor and I work really hard on producing top quality out of this, um, that it's going to take longer uh, for me than just one book per month. But at least the first three books, I think I could do one book per month, have them published. So at least you have readers who get the first book, 99 cents, or if they're on Kindle Unlimited, they get it for free. And then they could read books two and three, and then they'll be hungry for more. They'll be hooked at that point and want to read the rest of the series. That's that's the the strategy here. That's a good strategy, and that's uh, that's something that I'm I'm definitely interested in knowing how it how it goes on that. So you've got this book there. So you said you know when you spoke with Michael Anderle, you talked about getting a um, a mailing list. So what actions are you taking? Because indie publishing is different than traditional because you're the chief cook and bottle washer instead of having someone else hired on as the as the uh, those other hats, you've got all of them yourself, except for you hired up. But even then you're, you're making sure that the editorial is done properly. Even if you hire a pro, you still have to go through and sign off on it and say, okay, good. This is, this is good. And you have to sign off on the art and you got to sign off on, you know, the engravings of your maps, everything that goes into making your book, you've got to sign off on. So how have you prepared yourself for being able to do that and to do that, to have the highest quality book, um, series as you can make. Yeah. So, so John, uh, uh, so there's some crossover between the traditional publishing uh, trajectory and indie publishing where the commonality yeah. is you have to write a good story, put everything you for have sure. into it. That's it. They have to have a good base for that. Um, it's important, you know, writers are kind of islands unto themselves, but it's best to have some teamwork. So that involves getting feedback from beta readers getting people to volunteer to read your work and offer suggestions and to incorporate those changes. And then to self-edit yourself, uh, you know, read out loud, read your manuscript out loud, go through multiple passes, unless you do the Dean Wesley Smith right into the dark, which me and Brandon Sanderson are on the opposite side. We go through multiple revisions. That's how we operate. So for me, I like to go through multiple revisions, read out loud, use things like pro writing aid, and Grammarly, those are tools to invest in to be able to produce um, good self-edited content. And so for, for the, uh, the traditionally published author, their benefit they get is that they get a, uh, an editor. It comes with an editor. It's included, right, when, you have, when you're traditionally yeah. published, which is great. Uh, in these, the advice um, that we get is hire an editor, get a proofreader. You need to have those two. An editor could be as far, you know, in terms of a development ed editor for story content, copy editing, and then um, you have your proofreader. Any combination of those, but you need, you should get it edited. You should get it proofread. And then one step further. So in a, in a, in a series, uh, you would want to also write a lead magnet. So it's a free giveaway, which I did. Uh, I have a prequel that tells Miko, uh, the, the antagonist in book one, his story. So I have that as a prequel. I did that as a lead magnet. It's turned into a short novel. So that's a free giveaway. The idea is to pair that then, and now on the indie track we're talking, is to create a, a newsletter and to build a newsletter subscriber following, which I have done uh, using a combination of uh, of, of group promotions um, and my my reader magnets. So group promotions are you sign up for like Book Funnel or Story Origin, and they have other authors that you combine forces with, and you send out to your email subscribers uh, links to the group promotion, and then you get more subscribers by giving away your book, and then other people getting onto your list. So I've done that over time since 2020. I'm about 1,500 people now um, and growing by the day. So everybody says the number one tip is to have a newsletter and to have a subscriber list because if you're on Amazon or if you're uh, as an indie or you're, you're going wide, no matter what, you have these people and they're following you. So it's really important for, for people to build that newsletter and they're like, well, I don't know what to talk about in my newsletter. Well, have some cat pictures, dog pictures. Do it at least monthly and then just say, hey, I'm working on this. I'm writing about this. I don't have anything going on 
I'm not publishing right now, but at least something. And so a you, couple of points to that is is um, one obvious thing is to sign up for other authors you like to follow. Sign up for their newsletters. Go to their websites. They they all have that pretty much. And is interesting when I spoke with uh, Neil Gaiman uh, several years ago now. Um, he had just come over to the United States from UK, and he his he was big in UK, but not here in the US. And his breakout, he said, um, in the US that made his books go was he had a live journal. Every day he would post to it, and he'd post, you know, taking out the garbage, or here I'm writing this, or what do you think about this? And it just wasn't long, but he just he built up an audience, and people were interested, and continued to share with other people, and it just grew and grew and grew. And then by the time he came out with whatever the book was at the time. He had 50,000 followers on his live journal. And so that guaranteed when he said, okay, it's releasing today, he'd have himself a New York Times bestseller. You know, it just, from people following that. So you're, what you're saying there is, it just bears out so often that it is very sound advice. And if someone says, well, I don't like to do social, I don't like this. Well, if you're picking that, the avenue of having um, independent public, it's, the marketing hat is your hat and the PR hat is your hat. And you've got to be willing to do that. And even now with, with uh, traditional publishers or even going with, with uh, independent publishers, they're interested in someone who's like, okay, so what can you bring to the table? You know, I, well, I've got Facebook with 20,000 followers, 20,000 friends, um, 20, yeah, 20,000 followers, or even 5,000 followers. That's way better than going, well, I don't really like doing social media. You know, they're going to go for somebody that can actually bring something to the table. Yeah, you need to uh, you need to do these things you to promote and market your work. It's your your stuff doesn't sell itself. You have to engage um, out there, and you know, simple to to what uh, Neil Gaiman uh, did. You know, you could do like um, at least it would like Facebook. I have an author page, and then post every day. Hey, I worked on this. You know, this is this is what's happening. Uh, here's a here's a meme or something like that. At least every day, put something out there, and then that's uh, that can create or ask questions. Yeah, you know, what is your favorite you know fantasy book? Here's mine. Uh, start engagement, and um, that helps. So newsletter yeah. engagement on social media, um, and then also you know once you do have a product, uh, you do have to push for it. It's a it's a pay to play world as an indie author. You have to pay for advertising um, on, you know, uh, on Amazon or Facebook to help push that or through promotions. Like I, I, I signed up for some promotions like Book Barbarian, Fussy Librarian. There are sites like that that are recommended to help uh, boost um, uh, people to, to buy your book. And the whole idea, let's say, at least with Amazon, is to help boost their discoverability and visibility algorithms to help bring your book to other people organically who are browsing, looking for the next book, and they discover yours because it was showing up on a carousel ad, and then they click on it, buy your book, and now you, you, you're you adding to your fan base. Yeah. So all that exactly. has to work together um, uh, for the indie author. So it's a lot of work. You're, you're half your time Absolutely. creative and editing, and the other half, the business hat. And that's the way to succeed. Yep. Absolutely. Well, this has been great, Steve, talking with you. Um, the last question I've got is, how can people find you? How can people find this uh, this first volume, which is uh, soon to release? And uh, by the time people re hear this, it will have just released in April 2023. So um, how does somebody find you? All right. So uh, one of the author things that I did is I have a website. So it's stevepontazis.com. So Steve, S-T-E-V-E, and then Pontazis, P-A-N-T-A-Z-I-S.com. And on my homepage, I have a big banner ad, link for book one. Um, it takes to the Amazon page. It's 99 cents, free for Kindle Unlimited subscribers. And then if you scroll down on my homepage, uh, you could also sign up for my new monthly newsletter to stay in touch on my writer, writerly journey. And so one of the things I offer, like I talked about, is a lead magnet. So if, you si if someone signs up for my newsletter, they receive the prequel to the Light of Darkness series for free. It's called The Dark That Ignites. And it features the bad guy from book one, Miko, the villain. He's uh, his origin story. And they get that um, for free for signing up. And I also have a presence on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. Um, so knowing how to spell my name, you search for that. Uh, it's a kind of a unique name. So it's not 
uh, it's it's not that hard to find me on these uh, different social media platforms. But that's uh, the website is the main the main hub. Great. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, John. Appreciate you having me on the show today.